If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in LA, or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions, lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip to Los Angeles one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS app store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got the answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we're going to tell you about the ghosts of Hollywood and where they hang out. If you want to see these places for yourself, you'll find maps, notes, and pictures in the Circa app. There are plenty of ghosts in this world, but here in LA, we have famous ones. So, put your headphones on, maybe wait for it to get dark, and listen closely. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. The Knickerbocker Hotel sits just off of L.A.'s main thoroughfare of Hollywood Boulevard, once a much more glamorous neighborhood lined with theaters and clubs that, in their heyday, attracted all the hottest stars in town. This once extravagant hotel used to hold parties full of celebrities, and everyone from Elvis Presley to Marilyn Monroe slept in its beds. A few of these celebrities, it seems, never left. The Knickerbocker is now only a shell of its former self, a ghost filled with ghosts. If you walk into the lobby and look up, you'll see the remains of the hotel's Art Deco past, a beautiful chandelier designed in concentric rings of sparkling glass. But imagine back in the 1930s and 40s, the neighborhood around the Knickerbocker is alive and full of energy. Glamorous people in silks and furs stroll up and down these streets visiting theaters and bars, enjoying the champagne poured into coupe glasses at the hotel's bar and the dancing girls at the Lido nightclub next door. If you were standing in the lobby in the 1940s, you were probably watching the fancy people come in and out. You probably wouldn't have noticed an old man hobbling slowly past you, leaning on a cane, a book under one arm. Every day, he ambles down to the lobby from his room, sits on one of the Art Deco couches, and reads. He spends hours in the hotel's bar, drinking by himself. He speaks to almost no one, and only the employees who know he's living there know his name. And so on a warm July day in 1948, it is unclear how long the man has been unconscious before someone realizes. It takes, comparably, much less time for the news to spread across Hollywood. D.W. Griffith is dead. Griffith, in his time, was a titan of the first golden age of filmmaking. 
He was like the Michael Bay of early Hollywood, taking films from little vignettes and vaudeville comedies into full-blown epic narratives. His work defined the early big-budget Hollywood movie, and he was part of the cohort that founded United Artists, a production company that was independent of the studio system. His films, like The Birth of a Nation, were not without controversy. That film in particular is connected to a resurgence of the KKK. It caused an uproar nationwide, and Griffith felt unfairly maligned, a stigma he would spend his lifetime trying to throw off, and perhaps longer than that. The ghost of D.W. Griffith has been sighted at the Knickerbocker ever since, sometimes swinging his cane and humming to himself. If you imagine that ghosts are souls with unfinished business in life or are holding on to something still yearned for, then it will not be surprising that there are plenty of ghosts in L.A. This town draws people who come with grand desires. Some make it, whatever that means to them. Some are cut down in their prime. Some are never fulfilled, no matter how successful they are. And some end up dead and infamous, their stories haunting this city. If there were one place on earth full of the souls of people still trying to make it big or make it right, L.A. might be it. A quick note before we continue. I'm going to tell you about some of this city's most haunted locations, but you don't have to take notes. I'll mark these places on the map in the Circa app for you. On this map, you'll also find even more spooky places to give yourself a good shiver. Okay, then. The stories you are about to hear are as real as you want them to be. Marilyn Monroe and the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Marilyn Monroe moved into the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in the late 1940s. At least, that's how the story goes. A lot of Marilyn's story is difficult to verify, and many sources contradict each other. She was such a renowned figure, wrapped up in scandal and controversy and celebrity, that fact and myth have become warped over the years. We do know, though, that drama was not limited to the screen, and Marilyn in her life was haunted by demons, both real and imagined. And still today, according to many, she is one of the more famous spirits to haunt the Hollywood Roosevelt. Norma Jean Baker had been discovered by a photographer in 1944 while working in a munitions factory in Van Nuys, a suburb of L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. It was World War II, and the photographer, David Conover, had been sent to the factory to take morale-boosting photos of the women on the factory line. These first photos David took were never used for that purpose, but Norma Jean began to model for David and his friends. Not long after, Norma Jean, newly blonde, became Marilyn Monroe. With the help of Barry Lyon, an executive at 20th Century Fox, she had landed a modeling contract and become known as one of the hardest-working models at the Blue Book Model Agency. But the agency didn't think she'd amount to more than a swimsuit and pinup model. She, however, had bigger, you could say blonder, ambitions. She was taking acting classes and even scored a few small film roles, but nothing substantial yet. 
By many accounts, she took up residency in a cabana at the Hollywood Roosevelt sometime in the late 40s, where she would shoot the famous photo on the pool's diving board next to a bottle of suntan lotion. Many people will point to this as Monroe's very first professional advertising shoot, but it is almost certainly not the case. It was, however, one of the most iconic photographs of her career. The Marilyn Monroe of popular mythology resided at Roosevelt for about two years, but again, this is possibly not the case. What is true is that her life was like the plot of a soap opera, strewn with affairs with powerful men, and strong evidence suggests women as well. During the heyday of her years in the movies, the Roosevelt would have been the pinnacle of glamorous Hollywood. And if there's anything we know for sure about Marilyn, it's that her ambition to be part of glamorous Hollywood was a strong part of her identity. Through the ups and downs of her career, that desire was almost the only constant. So after her death of an apparent suicide on August 4, 1962, it is not surprising that her ghost would come back to reside at the Hollywood Roosevelt. Perhaps an attempt to ensure her legacy as one of the brightest stars in town is never forgotten. In the lore of Maryland, she resided in room 229, a second-floor room with a balcony overlooking the pool. Today, the hotel has dedicated a suite to her, decked out in mid-century decor with its own kitchenette and bar. It's available for rent and, depending on the day, can run you nearly $2,000 per night. Guests and hotel staff have reported seeing Marilyn's ghost in a full-length mirror, which is sometimes displayed in the lower foyer. One employee reported seeing an elegant but sad woman in a mirror while dusting it. But when she turned around to speak to the woman, there was no one in the room with her. Marilyn's ghost shares the Roosevelt with some other high-profile spirits. Perhaps most notably, Montgomery Clift, who stayed at the Roosevelt for three months while filming From Here to Eternity. In the movie, he plays a World War II Army bugler stationed in Hawaii just before the Pearl Harbor attacks, and Clift was nominated for an Oscar for his performance. Clift died in 1966 at age 45 after a lifelong struggle with alcohol abuse, and perhaps he felt he left business unfinished. He was notoriously brooding and was most likely in the closet at the time while being openly gay in Hollywood was unthinkable. Perhaps it was because his personal life was forced to remain so hidden that he threw himself into his craft. He was famous as one of the early method actors in Hollywood, and today his ghost is famous for method haunting. Brushing past employees and guests at the hotel, casting a shadowy figure down long hallways on the ninth floor, and occasionally playing the trumpet. There are reports of many other spectral sightings at the Roosevelt, like the ghosts of both Carol Lombard and Clark Gable, who began their love affair in a penthouse suite. Carol and Clark's love story is one of Hollywood's greatest and most unfinished. The two fell madly, completely in love, and were unquestionably two of the greatest and most well-liked actors of their generation. If there were a Hollywood it couple of their day, it was them. But all that ended during World War II, Carol had decided to lend her star power to the war bond tour and went to entertain small towns to convince people to buy bonds to support the U.S. war effort. The tour group finished a show in Ohio, and Carol was anxious to get back to L.A. and back to Clark, so she booked a flight. Her mother, who traveled with her, was petrified of flying and begged them to find another way that included wheels firmly on the ground, 
but Carol allayed her fears. Unfortunately, her mother had been right. Their plane crashed into a mountainside outside Las Vegas. All the lights on the ground had been turned off to reduce the risk of aerial bombardments by the Japanese. The pilots couldn't see the terrain rising until it was too late. Clark Gable was inconsolable. Though he married two more times during his life, when he died decades later, he asked to be buried next to Carol. Their love blossomed at the Roosevelt, and so if they are there, they are certainly two happy ghosts, reunited at last. Roosevelt visitors have also reported seeing an unnamed young girl in a pink jacket and ponytail, Sometimes a gentleman in a white dinner jacket can be seen playing the piano in the Blossom Ballroom, where the very first Oscars were held. And once a security guard saw an apparition swimming in the pool. It was after hours, and so the guard reportedly asked the ghost to get out of the pool, which it did. There are so many spirits haunting the Roosevelt that whether you've come to visit Marilyn Monroe or not, you'll most likely run into someone. We suggest coming by in the evening and having a drink at the spare room, a speakeasy-style lounge with vintage decor, board games, and a two-lane bowling alley. The lounge is open Wednesday through Sunday at 8 p.m. Greystone Mansion and the Death of Ned Doheny The hills that give Beverly Hills its name are full of grand estates, but most are secluded behind tall gates and walls. However, one of the grandest, and one of the first, is open for visitors. This is the Greystone Mansion. It sits atop a hill, like some castle out of a grim fairy tale. Its grounds and gardens are impeccably manicured, and through the city of Beverly Hills, the manor plays host to gardening classes, historical tours, and summer camps for kids. It is also, notoriously, haunted. In 1892, Edward Doheny was one of the first to discover oil in the ground under Los Angeles, near the present-day La Brea Tar Pits. This find would earn him a fortune, enough for his grandchildren and their grandchildren. His son, Ned Doheny, would later begin construction on the most expensive mansion in L.A. at the time, a grand castle made of gray stone. The estate would hold 55 rooms, cost nearly $4 million to construct, and contain a pool and a lake, kennels and stables for horses, a greenhouse, a firehouse, and tennis courts. In those early days, not very many people lived this far west, and Sunset Boulevard, which is the largest main road south of the hills, was little more than a horse track. Wealthy people often had second homes here, or ranches, country-style estates, the Greystone was styled in Gothic and neoclassical architecture and can feel creepy even if you don't know the story of Ned Doheny's murder. It's been featured in dozens of films, including, appropriately, the original Ghostbusters. Greystone Mansion was completed in the fall of 1928. Ned, his wife Lucy, and their five children moved in and spent that Christmas in their brand-new castle, on the night of February 16, 1929, just a few months later, Lucy Doheny was reading a magazine in the library when she heard a gunshot. 
According to the report, she didn't investigate or call the police, but had the family doctor paged at the movie theater where he was out for the evening. The doctor left the theater in Beverly Hills and drove up to the mansion, which would have been about a 10-minute drive, give or take. When he arrived, Lucy was waiting for him at the front door. The two headed for the east wing, where she claimed to have heard the gunshot. As they approached, a door to a bedroom opened, and Ned's friend and secretary, Hugh Plunkett, came out in a state of distress. He was also holding a gun. Upon seeing them, he ran back into the bedroom, slammed the door, and then Lucy and the doctor heard a second gunshot. When they entered the bedroom, they found both Ned and Hugh lying on the floor with blood pooling around them and bullet holes in their heads. This is the official story recorded by the police. However, the police were not called until over two hours later. And in the interim, several of the Doheny relatives were phoned and had arrived at the house. No one knows what went on during those intervening hours, nor why the police weren't called until 2 a.m. But two days later, the DA's office closed the investigation into the deaths, ruling it a murder-suicide. So why did Hugh Plunkett, Ned's friend and confidant for many years, suddenly decide to turn a pistol on his friend and then himself? There are a couple of theories. For one, the two were rumored to be lovers. So perhaps this stemmed from a relationship quarrel. Hugh Plunkett's distress might also have been related to his involvement in another scandal, one that eventually took down an American president. The elder Doheny, who had discovered and drilled L.A.'s first oil, had become one of the country's richest men. And I do mean richest. He was richer than John D. Rockefeller at the time. Billions with a capital B. In fact, take any drive through Beverly Hills, and at one point or another, you'll drive on or across Doheny Drive. Edward Doheny had made many powerful friends. One such friend was Albert Fall, Secretary of the Interior to U.S. President Warren G. Harding. Years before the construction of Greystone began, Edward Doheny had sent his son Ned and Ned's secretary, Hugh, to Washington with a black leather bag containing $100,000. Doheny would later claim that the cash was merely a loan to a friend in need. But conveniently, his friend Albert would also grant Doheny very lucrative oil drilling rights to the federal lands in L.A. The trouble was, this wasn't the only convenient granting of oil leases that Albert Fall had signed. He also signed over rights to the Teapot Dome lands in Wyoming. And when it came out, the entire affair became known as the Teapot Dome Scandal, President Harding was not aware of the quid pro quo, but the turmoil apparently took its toll on his health, and he died before his first term had expired. Congress investigated the scandal, and it became a source of public scrutiny for the Doheny family. By the winter of 1929, Albert Fall had already been tried and convicted. The other players in the scandal were to be called to testify in the coming months, including father and son Doheny and the man who carried the black bag, Hugh Plunkett. However, after the murder-suicide, Edward Doheny was acquitted, as according to the jury, he had suffered enough. But this is not where the mysteries in this case end. Both Ned and Hugh were buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery, a secular cemetery, despite the fact that Ned's mother gave generously to the Catholic Church. Many people found that odd. 
There have also been theories posted by criminologists that Plunkett could not have committed the suicide as the gunshot wound that killed him was fired, evidently, from behind him. And while the shot that killed Ned was fired at close range, some believe the elder Doheny to have played a role in the events of that night. But alas, we'll never know the truth, unless their spirits reveal any secrets. The ghosts of Ned, Hugh, and Lucy have all been reported at Greystone. Some have also seen a shadowy figure in a black suit. Security guards have reported hearing mysterious footsteps, doors that open and shut, and objects that move on their own. The room in which both men were found dead was nicknamed the Murder Salon. Gold wallpaper with a hand-painted design featuring crows hangs on the walls. The mansion and grounds are now administered by the Beverly Hills Park and Rec Department, and you can take a ranger-led tour of the property. Check the website for times. Even without the tour, the beautifully kept grounds are open almost every day between 10 and 6. And you can explore on your own, whether you're ghost hunting or not. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Pico House and the Massacre. The story of the Pico House goes back to the early days of Los Angeles, a time when the city that would so often host the sets for Wild West movies actually was the Wild West. In downtown L.A., El Pueblo Historical Monument is the site of the first village of Los Angeles, established by 44 settlers in 1781. Today, it's set among skyscrapers, theaters, and chic restaurants, but this little patch of land is preserved with care and a bit of artificial charm to take you back in time to the L.A. of over 100 years ago. Mexican restaurants with mariachi musicians, street vendors selling tortilla presses, and Dia de los Muertos souvenirs abound. The founding of Los Angeles is celebrated on September 4th with festivities and reenactments, but historians actually believe that the settlers arrived in several groups much earlier in the year. The September date might well be arbitrary. Nearly 100 years later, Pio Pico, the last Mexican governor of California, financed the construction of a grand hotel at Los Angeles Plaza. L.A. was now a city of just under 6,000 people. Pico had successfully made the transition after the Mexican-American Revolution and was one of the wealthiest men in California. The hotel would cost $85,000, a massive sum at the time, have 33 rooms, and be the most luxurious hotel in all of Southern California. It was called Casa de Pico, or Pico House. When Pico House opened in 1870, it was state-of-the-art, 
indoor plumbing, gas chandeliers, a French restaurant, even an aviary. California had been admitted into the Union as a free state, but after the Civil War divided the country, most residents of California sided with pro-slavery Democrats. Pio Pico was staunchly anti-slavery, and downtown Los Angeles was racially diverse. It was also, at the time, still the Wild West. There was law, but not much of it. The downtown streets around Pico House held brothels and gambling. This probably wasn't a problem for Pio Pico, who was renowned for enjoying a good time. He threw booze-soaked parties at his new hotel. But racial tension in the city was about to erupt. On October 23, 1871, a violent gunfight rang out between two rival groups of Chinese immigrants who occupied a corner of early Los Angeles next to El Pueblo. There were less than 200 ethnic Chinese in the city at the time. The conflict, apparently, was over a girl. But the result was the killing of a white civilian and a police officer. Whether on purpose or by accident, no one can say now. But on October 24th, a mob of 500 angry white and Hispanic Angelinos attacked the Chinese residents on Calle de las Negros. Nineteen Chinese immigrants were murdered by the mob, many of them lynched. In all, only one of the men murdered that day had even been involved in the earlier altercation that provoked the massacre. Years later, in a Los Angeles Times article, a former employee of Pico House recalled that the scene, quote, was a madhouse of frenzied armed men and terrified stampeding horses. From the entrance of the Pico House, I could see a mass of men flocking toward the Aliso Street opening of Negro Alley and hear a steady roar of guns. I remember one fellow, big, hatless, and coatless, brandishing huge butcher's axes. End quote. At Pico House today, the ghosts of those murdered during the 1871 massacre have been reported wandering the now-deserted hallways. Don Pio Pico, whose fortune would slip away, in part due to excessive gambling, would never regain the height of power and influence he had when Pico House first opened. He would continue to entertain for a further 10 years until he lost the hotel to foreclosure. Many believe his spirit is still there. You'll want to look for a man dressed in a fine three-piece suit, carrying a cane adorned with an ivory woman's leg. L.A. City runs tours at the historical grounds around El Pueblo and the surrounding buildings, including Avila Adobe and Olvera Street. By the way, for those truly into the macabre, just a few blocks away is the Cathedral of Our Lady of Angels, a large and elaborately designed church. We're talking exquisite stained glass, votive candles giving off their dim, flickering light, each one representing a prayer. But it's what lies beneath that really takes it to a new level. Underneath the cathedral is a mausoleum containing 6,000 crypts. A number of bishops and archbishops reside here, along with some Hollywood royalty, like Gregory Peck. It's beautiful, but most definitely haunted. The Hotel Cecil The Cecil may just be the most haunted hotel in all of Los Angeles. It opened its doors in downtown L.A. in 1924, one in a wave of new hotels built in the Beaux Arts style with elegant touches like stained glass windows and a marble-clad lobby. 
The Cecil was designed for business travelers and tourists, not as high class as other hotels of the era like the Millennium Biltmore nearby, but it was meant to evoke the same elegant lifestyle. Sadly, fortune would not go the Cecil's way. Within a few years, the city and the nation had been hit by the Great Depression. Life rebounded in the 40s, but the area around the Cecil became known as Skid Row, as the homeless population in Los Angeles soared. More attractive hotels popped up nearby, and the Cecil fell into disrepair, eventually becoming an SRO, or single-room occupancy. Over the years, the Cecil developed an undesirable reputation for untimely deaths and for hosting not one, but two serial killers. The first death was a suicide in 1927. Percy Ormond Cook, self-inflicted gunshot wound. The next was also a suicide, W.K. Norton in 1931, poison capsules. More followed. The Cecil at one point garnered the unfortunate nickname, The Suicide. A woman named Pigeon Goldie was murdered in 1964. A suspect was arrested, but later cleared, and the murder remains unsolved. The ghosts of Cook, Norton, and Goldie have all been seen in the rooms at the Cecil. Then in 1985, Richard Ramirez took up residence at the Cecil. His room was on the 14th floor, and it cost him, purportedly, $14 a night. He was often seen wandering around Skid Row. Evidently, the neighborhood and the hotel was a comfortable place for him to hide out. He was able to strip off bloody clothes in the back alley before returning to his room, and being spotted with blood-stained clothes or only in his underwear didn't seem to alarm any of the Cecil's residents. Richard Ramirez, it turned out, was the Night Stalker, a serial killer whose modus operandi was to break into houses in the middle of the night and commit horrific crimes. He said he was possessed by Satan himself, and his appearance, black eyes that looked through you and rotting teeth that gave the appearance of being sharpened, chilled everyone who worked on the case for the rest of their lives. Over the summer of 1985, he attacked more than 30 people on his spree, eventually killing 14. He removed the eyes of one victim and stored them in a jewelry box he stole from her house. So just imagine discovering that in a hotel room. Thankfully, the Cecil did not have daily housekeeping at the time. Ramirez was eventually cornered and sentenced to be executed via the gas chamber. He never made it, though, dying in jail while on death row. In 1991, a very charming Austrian journalist came to stay in room 712 at the Cecil. Jack Unterweger had been convicted of the murder of a woman in Austria in 1974 and had been sentenced to life in prison. But his model behavior earned him an early release. He was heralded as the poster child for prison reform, except that it wasn't even remotely true. As a journalist covering crime for an Austrian magazine, Unterweger went on ride-alongs with local Los Angeles detectives. It was later determined that he was using these ride-alongs as opportunities to scout for victims. He chose to stay at the Cecil because of its connection to the Night Stalker. In 
During his time in L.A., three prostitutes were murdered, strangled, as Unterweger was wont to do. In the end, he would murder an additional 10 women since being released from that Austrian prison. After being caught in Miami, he was sent back there to resume his incarceration. But this was not the end of the trouble at the Cecil. On January 26, 2013, Canadian college student Elisa Lamb arrived in L.A. and checked into the Cecil. She never checked out. She'd gone to L.A. as a part of a solo West Coast trip, some rest and relief from her studies at school. Her parents were concerned about her traveling alone, but Elisa assured them she'd check in at each waypoint. And she had for her entire trip, which is why her parents started to worry when, on January 31st, the day she was meant to have checked out of the Cecil, they didn't hear from Elisa. The hotel and police were notified the next day. Her room was searched. Elisa's laptop, clothing, all her belongings were still in her room. But Elisa wasn't. There was nothing to indicate any forced entry or foul play. A search for her movements showed that she'd changed her room once and had visited a bookstore, but then the trail went cold until they started watching the hotel's security footage. The footage showed Elisa in one of the Cecil's elevators. For two minutes, she paced the elevator erratically. She seemed to be afraid, even appearing to hide as if someone were trailing her. At one point, the elevator doors opened and she peered out of the elevator bank, motioning as if something else just out of sight were there. She even held the door open and pressed the button several times. Then she walked out of the elevator and was never seen again. Elise's parents were distraught. The LAPD were stumped. It wasn't until several weeks later that guests started to notice a strange taste in the hotel's water. A renewed search of the hotel revealed the gruesome truth. Elisa had drowned in the Cecil's water tank. The tank needed to be emptied completely and sliced open in order to remove her, which begs the question, how did she get in there? To this day, the mystery remains unsolved. One theory is that she was experiencing a psychotic break of some kind, but her death will always be shaded with a certain amount of eeriness. And if she was indeed seeing figures that weren't really there, could they have been some other ghostly denizens of the Cecil, a group that now may include Elisa herself? The Cecil, in an effort to distance itself from the horrors in its past, has been remade into apartments for unhoused Angelinos, it has had, in typical Hollywood fashion, a fair bit of work done. The shady characters are gone, but I don't imagine the ghosts have ever been evicted. The Chateau Marmont and John Belushi The Sunset Strip has seen its fair share of celebrity death, and maybe more than its fair share of hauntings, the comedy store is haunted by a great many spirits, most notably the comedian Steve Lubetkin, who committed suicide by jumping from the building next door. He is apparently a jovial ghost and a bit of a prankster, and either Steve or another ghost sometimes likes to play the piano when no one is looking. Pink Taco used to be the side of the Players Club in the 1940s. It saw all manner of Hollywood debauchery and quite a bit of action from the gangster Mickey Cohen and his friends as well. 
The attic of the Rainbow Bar and Grill is where all the paranormal action is there. Some ghost here likes to reorganize the cash registers. There are other spots to check out if you're ghost hunting in Hollywood. We'll put some good ones in the notes for you. But one of the best on this side of town is undoubtedly the Chateau Marmont Hotel. John Belushi died of a drug overdose at the Chateau in 1982 and apparently has never left. The Chateau opened its doors in 1929. Its design was inspired by a chateau in the Loire Valley of France. It was notable for its combination of hotel suites, bungalows, and cottages that attracted long-term celebrity residents. In 1939, Harry Cohn, founder of Columbia Pictures, reportedly said, if you must get into trouble, do it at the Chateau Marmont. And over the years, it has garnered quite a collection of stories, including Lindsay Lohan charging $46,000 to her room, Jean Harlow and Clark Gable shacking up for an affair, and Led Zeppelin's drummer John Bonham driving his motorcycle through the hotel lobby to celebrate his 25th birthday. John Belushi came to fame as one of the original cast members of Saturday Night Live. He formed the Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd, an act that was only intended to warm up the studio audience but became a sensation. He featured in well-loved comedies, including Animal House. But despite his talent, he was dogged by drug abuse, and Lorne Michaels was forced to fire him from SNL more than once. On March 4th, Caught in a downward spiral, Belushi visited the office of famed Hollywood manager Bernie Brillstein to ask for money. Brillstein, suspecting Belushi wanted the cash for drugs, turned him down the first time, but then acquiesced when he returned later with the same request so as not to embarrass him in front of the other people in the room. The next day, Belushi was found dead of an overdose in bungalow number three at the chateau. Belushi was buried on Martha's Vineyard, but his spirit remains at the Chateau. Hotel staff have reported seeing him, hanging around from time to time. Shortly after his death, a family moved into bungalow number three, and occasionally the parents of the young toddler would catch him laughing. The boy told them a funny man was entertaining him. One day the boy caught sight of Belushi's face in a photograph and announced, There's the funny man. The Chateau is going through a period of transition with renovations and a rethinking of its business model. If you're not staying there, it can be tricky to visit. Making a reservation at the restaurant is probably the only surefire ticket onto the grounds. As we said at the top, ghost stories are as real as you want them to be. And regardless of whether you encounter one of these spirits or not, just by listening to these stories and remembering what has happened you have kept a part of these people and their stories alive. If thoughts are energy, then the energy of these spirits has been flowing throughout this guide and in each of the haunted places we've taken you to. We hope you've enjoyed your trip to the other side of the velvet rope in the hereafter. Thanks for listening to our stories about haunted L.A. Remember to check out the other episodes in this guide for deeper dives into L.A., including its architecture, its music, and some other famous dark tales. With a Circa subscription, you'll unlock so much more, including a bonus episode about a famous L.A. seance. Download the Circa app to check it out. Plus, you can listen to episodes about myths, legends, and murders in other places around the world, like Hawaii and Iceland. 
Serka, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.